Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today my guest is Dr. Lydia Dever. If you graduated from Life University in the recent or distant past, then you certainly know who she is. If not, then let me just tell you that she is the Gonstead Diplomate. She's on the board of directors for the GCSS. She's past president of the GCSS, and she's the chair of the Diplomate Committee. The thing that always impressed me is the fact that after working five days a week for Life University, she then sees patients every Saturday. So she's both an educator and a clinician. That means we have a lot of things in Gonstead world that we can talk about. So let's just see where it goes. So without any further ado, Dr. Lydia Dever. Hello, Dr. Dever. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, David. How are you? <laughs> Very good. Um, since I already know your story, but since I always do this, can you tell everybody a little bit about how you got into, uh, into chiropractic and how you got into Gonstead Chiropractic? Sure. Um, I worked for a chiropractor for over 12 years. Um, it was um, one of those guys that didn't really do a whole lot of analysis and just everybody got the same adjustment. And then, um, but associate doctors started coming in and out of the practice and, and there was, um, a guy that came in as a new associate. And about that time I started my, uh, undergrad, um, courses to go to come to chiropractic school. And of course everybody wanted to try the new guy. So, um, we go in and he's checking my spine and, and he's got this little thing he's running down my back I'm like what what's that I turn around I'm looking what is that he's he tells me what it is and what it does and and I said okay cool so then a couple weeks later you know I'm doing my studying I don't know how maybe a couple months I don't can't remember the exact time but my left arm started going numb and it got so bad that um you know I told my boss and I said my arm is numb I just want to cut it off it hurts so bad he goes well you're not getting adjusted enough and I, I'm like, okay. So I started getting adjusted. And he said, three times a week for the next month. And I said, okay. So I did. And it just progressively got worse. And he was doing um, like the supine rotatory move. And it just got so bad. And so I was working opposite days of the, the new guy. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to stop in and see if, you know, if he'll check me. And so, um, I did, and he ran his little thing on my back and, um, and I, and I said, he says, well, you've been over adjusted and on the wrong bone. And I'm like, my mind just went, you know, it was just like, okay, what's going on here? Why is this so different? And so he explained to me, he says, you're going to feel like you want to get adjusted a lot. He says, but don't do it. I'm going to adjust you three times in the next month. And I said, okay. Um, he goes, just stay with me. And you'll, and I, right after the first adjustment, I would say that it was about 50% better. And so after that, it just, um, you know, I followed what he said three times, one month. And by the end of that month, it was gone. And so I said, I got to know what you're doing. What's the difference? Why did you only do one bone and why did you do it different? And started asking him all these questions. And he told me all about the Gonstead system. So I said, okay, I got to know what that, what is that thing? And he got nervous scope. Okay. All these questions, I just kept bombarding him. So um, that's how I got interested in Gonstead because it was, he knew where it needed to be done and that's all he did and, and it worked. So. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that, that it's amazing for how many patients and we all have them that you make that specific adjustment and it blows their mind because you get the patients that they've never been to a chiropractor before, but you get the ones who will tell you the stories about, I've been to 30 chiropractors, I've been to seven chiropractors, and nobody's helped me. And then one adjustment made more difference than all those other people. And yeah, I've always said that that, that speaks more than your mouth ever could. You can't, you can't communicate that verbally, but once they have the experience, you can't take that away either. Yeah, that's right. And what was interesting, I thought was, it was kind of cool when, um, my old boss went on vacation and the new guy took over the practice. Um, people started getting better. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then like, I think the contract was up in two years or whatever. And, and then he decided to go ahead and open his own practice. And a lot of the patients that were formerly in the practice um, 
traveled to where he was. And in fact, I stopped getting adjusted by my boss and I started going there too. He got quite mad at me. He, <laughs> he was, he was pretty mad at me um, when I finally left to go to school. But you know what? I said, you, I gave you a chance. I, you know, I wasn't getting any better and I have to take care of my own spine. So he wasn't real happy, but oh well. <laughs> That's the way it is. <laughs> Well, and you've been with Life University for a while now. So how did how did you end up in education? Because I don't think that's ever really where you intended to go with the whole thing. No, not at all. I was um, I was in the process of building my practice, um, building out the building, I should say, because I was three years in practice, and I had um, I was a uh, independent contractor for another Gonstead doctor, and I was wanting to open my own space. And Linda Mullen, who's a Gonstead fellow. Um, she worked at Life University at the time and she called me and she says, Hey, you want to come and teach Gunstead? And I said, sure. Why not? Well, not realizing that I was like, well, I knew I was in the middle of building this practice out and then having to pick all the furniture and all the paint and all that stuff. And then I start teaching at Life. And, and, um, I thought when she called me that I was just going to go help her you know, like it, what I didn't know they were going to hire me. So, oh. uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I, um, she goes, well, we start on Monday and it was like Thursday or Wednesday or Thursday. And she goes, and you got to go to this place and give a urine sample and this place and do that. And this, I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? And she's like, oh, you're going to have like six labs to teach. I'm like, oh man. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that's how I got started. <laughs> so and six labs is no joke. That's that's no. not like some small part-time work. <laughs> well, and then four weeks later, what was interesting, um, you know, because as Gonstead doctors, we have um, a lot of knowledge and so many things that, that are um, part of the core curriculum at Life University. And so motion palpation, x-ray line drawing. So then um, one of the other instructors went on a, a surgery leave. And so I get this phone call and I hear this laughing in the background and they're like, um, and I said, why are you guys laughing and calling me and laughing? So she says, uh, so-and-so is going on surgery leave. And, and, um, if we teach the, her labs, we don't get paid, but if you teach her labs, we get, you get paid and we want somebody to get paid for doing this. And I said, okay, when are they? And so I went from four weeks into the first quarter I ever taught having only six labs to having 10 labs. Wow. And, and yeah, so, and then from that point on, you know, I just, I was ingrained into the curriculum because of all the stuff we already know. So <laughs> did you, it was cool. did you have any time to actually see any patients during that time? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I did. I was working, um, seeing patients Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, um, from three to eight. And I was working at life and, um, Tuesday and Thursday, and I think on a Friday or something like that, but I was allowed, they let me get out of there by two thirty so I could get up to the practice, um, from three to eight. So yeah, I was, I did that for 10 years where I did both. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. Well, and I, I wanted to start by introducing your educational experience because today we're going to talk about the diplomate test okay. and I know a lot of work went into that. So I want, I wanted people to know that, um, that that's kind of where the background comes from is the fact that you have this experience with life and, putting together tests and making curriculum and putting all that stuff together. And so um, I know a little bit about the story, but um, it was a while back. I don't even know how many years now when you reformulated the whole diplomate test from something that was a little more, I don't know, <laughs> nebulous, <laughs> ethereal, and to something that was more concrete and educational type. Um, so you talk a little bit about, about that and, and that process and, and what's gone into creating it, what it is now. Sure. Um, well, it involves Linda Mullen again, because she wanted me to take the diplomate test. And so I did. And she says, well, I'm going to have to kind of help prepare you for this test. And I said, why is that? And she says, well, I'm going to give you a couple examples of the questions. <laughs> and so she showed me a couple examples of the questions. And I'm like, I have no idea what they're asking me right now. Hmm. And so I read it again. And then she would tell me the answer. I'm like, well, that's not what the question said. And so it was very, um, very subjective. Questions were very subjective based on whoever wrote the test. It wasn't, it didn't follow, um, a, it followed us. I don't want to say it didn't follow a source because they were Gonstead doctors that wrote it, but it was, 
it wasn't written in such a way that if you didn't know this person's practice, you you wouldn't be able to navigate this question. Yeah, the questions were kind of written like they had an answer in mind, and then the question was written in the way that their mind got them to that answer. But that didn't mean right. it was actually going to get your mind to that same answer. That's that right. That's confused. right. So after I took that test, I said, um, then of course, let's see, she's like, well, you need to be on the board of directors and you need to do this and you need to do that. And I'm like, well, you're just volunteering me for a bunch of stuff here. And so, well, I wanted to get involved. And so I did, I, I got involved in the, um, in the test. Sorry about that. I'm outside. Shh, come here. Brewster. Um, and I got involved and I looked at, it and I said, we just need to rewrite this thing because, um, one of the things I learned early on in making tests for the classroom is have somebody else check your work because what you ask may not be the answer you get, or you may not be asking the right question to get the answer you want. And so, um, you know, it was a big lesson in learning to write good test questions and to be able to, um, gauge the knowledge that somebody has when they answer a question. So mm -hmm. that's how that all started. <laughs> I actually had an interesting conversation here um, in Nevada. I was talking to the board office, which happens to be locally here in Reno. And the ladies who are in there are very nice. And I was talking to them. And when I was doing the licensing test, we had a conversation about the fact that they had recently been told by, I think it was National Board or somebody, that they needed to do a better job writing their questions for their licensing test because it was the same problem that... And I kind of told him, I said, you know, I learned the hard way from teaching at life that writing test questions is an art form. It's not just because you know the question, the answer doesn't mean you know how to write a good, a good question. And they said, yeah, that's something that they've actually been working on is trying to redo their test because they found the same thing that just because people got a question wrong doesn't mean they don't know the answer. It just means the question might not actually be phrased correctly and it might be too right. confusing. Right. So it's, and then it's we took it to a step further. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, we took it a step further and I had them, uh, had the, whoever was submitting questions for the test, cause we started having the candidates do that. Um, they had to give me a source and because some of the questions, I, first of all, I didn't have time to go find out where they got the question from. I mean, I knew the chapters and I knew Plogger, but to really to dig into that, to figure out where that question yeah. came from. And what was interesting is some of the minutia that a lot of people picked up on. I'm like, you can't test somebody on, um, chapter seven um image three seven point three underneath the caption of what it says so right yeah 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 you end up you end up chasing after the little minutia but you miss the bigger finer points of right what are we really trying to do here right <laughs> yeah that um so with with having a test like that and actually i like the fact that at life the uh, officer uh, candidate test is basically a mini version of the diplomate test and so it gives a lot of opportunities. Even for us, it helped me. I don't think I could have helped you with testing the diplomate test if I hadn't have done that first and done it several times to actually see how does this flow because it's it's complicated and it's got a lot of moving parts. But at the same time, I remember um, after I took the diplomate test, uh, Jeannie Taylor asked me what I thought of it. And I said, I said, that was the hardest test I've ever taken, but it was the most fair test I've ever taken. Um, and I never changed my opinion on that. I felt like it was a very fair test because nothing was being asked to trick me. It was truly being right. asked to test me. Do I know how to do this? And I, I feel like if you really do follow the system day after day after day, then after a number of years, you're probably going to know the answers, whether you studied them or not, just because it's going to come naturally. Right. And it is, I mean, and it's, a, you know, whether you're three years in practice, five years in practice, 20 years in practice, um, it is the test is a couple different things. It's comprehensive. It's um, to see if you do have a baseline knowledge of the Gonstead system and can you teach it, you know, having this baseline knowledge, that's what the diplomates should um, be able to move forward with is um, teaching the new generation um, about mm -hmm. the system. So that's kind of how I developed it. Um, well, I shouldn't say just me. I, um, I started off just me, but then we have a committee now that, um, that contributes. And so that's really nice on, um, and you're right, that student test for when, for when they take it, because they can take it in their sixth quarter, and they haven't even started seeing patients yet. And mm -hmm. they are asked to um, answer questions based on um, patient care and case management. And so it is quite um, a difficult task for someone who has, hasn't really started seeing patients yet.
<laughs> it oh. is. Yeah. It's, it's asking a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, it's, I guess it's, uh, it was always fun being on the, uh, the doctor side because I know when they do it, that is a stressful, well, really it's a stressful week because at school it's about half the week that they spend taking that test. Although maybe yes. by now, <laughs> but, um, whereas the diplomate test, it's like crammed into like a really dense amount of time. So it's like, you're just rolling the whole time. Right. Yeah. And we have 11 candidates this quarter. Oh, um, I know we're going to have to go to three days. It's just not enough. I'm going to have to fly to Atlanta. <laughs> oh, well, that would be wonderful. <laughs> I would love the help. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. So I guess the other question, the thing that people often bring up is like, what's the value of taking the diplomate test? I know there's, I've heard people say after they've been in practice, say, let's just pick a number like 15 years. Well, I know what I'm doing. I know that I know what I'm doing. Why would I take a diplomate test? So, but I do think, um, like we were talking about before, I think that there's value in having an objective measurement because it is human nature to always assume you're good. Maybe not the best, but to assume you're good. It's actually a heuristic called the better than average effect. So in things that are good, we assume we're better than average. And in things that we're that are bad, we also assume we're better than average. So if somebody said, are you a liar? Well, maybe I lie sometimes, but I'm better than most people. Or <laughs> do you, are you loyal? Well, I may not be the most loyal person, but I'm lo more loyal than most people. It's just a natural heuristic. And so it's just natural that in practice, every chiropractor, Gonstead or not, thinks that they are above average. And so what's the value of having a, an objective test? Uh, and it's not just to beat you up. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, because that's not the purpose of the test. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I like what you said earlier. It's not meant to trick you. Um, but I think the value is, um, is once again, bringing you back to those basic tenets of what we, we should know and keeping you grounded. And especially when you go out to practice and, and you don't, you're not as fortunate as those of us who have been connected to education again and working with students on a continuous basis or connected in the workshops um, or the extravaganza or wherever it is you get to work with students. Um, if you're not connected to those very basics, you do, um, you know, you don't have that network of um, checking yourself all the time and say, you know, um, am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, and I think that's what the diplomate test offers is let's take it back down to the very, not a very basic level, but let's take it back down to a somewhat basic level. And uh, remember um, that we can all add a little bit different style to Gunstead, but ultimately have, we should follow the, um, the protocols um, to make sure that we are all doing it that same way, which kind of leads me to something else. Um, following the protocols. And when you belong to the GCSS, or um, I, I'm not sure if Gunset Seminars list is, dip, lists a diplomate status or not, but GCSS does, um, it's listed by your name. And so um, other doctors, other Gunstead doctors, they know what that means. And um, they can, and patients who get on the website and look for that stuff, they, if they see a, a designation of Gunstead Diplomate or Fellow, they're going to know that you know what you're doing and they can feel comfortable um, with coming to you um, as a Gunstead doctor, even from another state. So um, I think there's a couple of reasons why that's a good thing to do it. Um, and you, you know, Greg Plogger took that, that yep. Diplomate test. Yep. Yep. <laughs> He, yeah, he did. I guess he kind of owned that test. But, he did. <laughs> he did but, very, very well. He took it, I think, a little bit after me. And I, I, I remember that. And I, in my head, I was, like, I was like, it was kind of hard to imagine that he hadn't taken that test or that he wasn't there. But it was like, okay, let's just go through the motions and prove that he actually does know what everybody thinks he knows. And he totally did. So yeah, he did. no longer yeah. left to conjecture. We know he took the test and he did really well. And he taught me a few things during the test too. So that was kind of nice. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I remember hearing other people say, it's the only time I've ever given the diplomate test and learned something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, oh, I was just thinking of something a second ago. I guess um, for me, when I took the, uh, when I took the diplomate test, it was, it was partly the idea of, I think I know what I know, but I only know what I think I know. And so having somebody objectively look at it and either say, you need to work on these areas 
which I may not have ever discovered on my own, or have them say, yeah, you've got it figured out, you've got these parts down, so that I can have confidence in it, That's even right. as separate from being listed or any designation or title, mm -hmm. that helped me going back into practice to know that I can have more confidence in what I'm doing because I'm not guessing or kind of sure, but this really, I really am doing it right. And I need to like dig into that and go and, and like really be solid there. And so I think that there is a, for each person, there's a, a benefit to it. I know some, I've talked to some of the younger doctors who recently passed. And that's one of the things it did for them is it gave them confidence going into their office to know that I really am doing this right. So I really can't expect the results that I see every day. And, and yeah, and hear about it and, and everybody else talks about and, and I, I haven't had a case like that yet. And I, you know, you're absolutely right because there's not very often we get to go in into practice if we open our arm place with another doctor close by or, or with another doctor in the practice itself. And so having that um, little bit of feedback, um, you know, along with all of your training leading up to that point, it is, it's a, it's a big deal. And so um, I think it also encourages people to get reinvolved in um, the workshops and the seminar and the extravaganza, because paying it forward is part of what we need to do as well as, as diplomates uh, in one way or another, we should be, uh, training those in the, uh, you know, younger in the, in the profession to, um, become as good, if not better than we are. You know, that leads me to a topic we don't talk about often, but there are a few small perks that come with being a diplomate, but I think one of the biggest perks, and it's totally a self-serving thing is that you get to go to the meeting of the minds. And for somebody who's not a diplomat has never been to the meeting of the minds. They don't really know what they're missing, but the meeting of the minds are, um, very unique conferences. I remember that that ultimately, that is what made me decide to become a diplomate. Well, I went to a meeting of the minds. I decided I need to become a diplomate. And then Randy Johnson told me, you should have already taken the diplomate test. <laughs> and I was like, all right, that confirms it. I'll just do it. Um, so I did. Um, but the meeting of the minds, I, I think one of the first ones I went to was the one that was at Palmer West that was on concussion. Oh, okay. That one, yeah. that one yeah. was yeah. so amazing. And I had never been to any seminar with anything like it that I was like, how would I, how would I want to not go to this every year and, and experience these things? And so. Um, right. And, and I think that was probably the point when we started talking about, um, because we want, um, we would love to be able to draw strictly on um, Gonstead doctors who have the expertise in a lot of these things. But um guess what? We have a lot of our colleagues that are outside the Gonstead system that, that are doing some of the same work we are. Um, maybe not quite with the technique we use, but the, the work still has to be done. And um, so we started inviting other folks who are experts in that field and to give us, um, and what was cool, I thought was, I was really impressed was they understood what we did enough that they could apply what they taught us to our world and so that was that was really um that was really good it was it made it easier to um digest it and use it on monday morning so yeah well and for the, the period of time that i was putting together the media of the minds i really as i tried to put up a lineup i would start by trying to find as many non-gonstead people as i could and then just fill in the gaps with Gonstead people. And if I still had a gap, then I'd stick myself in there. <laughs> that was my order. And if and my goal was to make it so that I didn't have to do anything. Um, I never really succeeded, I don't think. But that was well, my goal. Big responsibility. <laughs> yeah, my well, goal I was, have I, to, I have, go ahead. I have to give you a compliment because every time you've ever presented, um, I know you put a lot of work into it. And um, the last one I heard... Um, that you present, I think we were at Sherman maybe when we did the, um, the, uh, C word. <laughs> yeah. And, um, just the amount of research you dug into and the connections you made and, and, um, and then we had so much nutrition, um, uh, brought forward that, that weekend as well. And, and here's what happens in the body and here's what we need to look for. And it was just like, you know, it was mind blowing. I had so many notes and then you go back and read your notes. And I'm like, I have no idea why I wrote that, but let me go look at that article again. <laughs> so 
that's what I like about the meeting of the minds. It's one of the few times I go back over my notes and I'm like, yes, I need to dig in deeper into this, this topic that, um, and, and then especially on the C word, one of the weird things that happened was, um, Dr. Geary kind of went in his own way and I kind of went in my own way, but then we would see each other either at Mount Horb or at a meeting of the minds. And it was amazing to see how we might have, a, we would have a lot of overlap. It was just a little bit of fringe stuff. And so my fringe stuff and his fringe stuff kind of set us on a different course, but we found that independently we were finding a lot of the same things to be true. And so again, that gives confidence to, I can present this because I'm not, I'm, I'm following the science and so is he, and we're ending up in the same place. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. I think that's another great thing about the meeting of the minds is that everybody's kind of doing their own work, but when we come together, it seems like we all end up overlapping and agreeing on where things are going. Yeah. And I love that it's not, um, you know, and, and I do, don't get me wrong, this next statement, I hope nobody takes offense to this, but I love hearing the stories of those who worked with Gonstead and, and, you know, because there's always a pearl in there oh, yeah. that they can give you. But I also really gravitate towards digging into the research and the science of stuff because we just know so much more now than we used to. And so when you can add that to what those little pearls that you get, um, it just, to me, it brings it alive and then we can start asking more questions. Um, and then we can perpetuate that research in our own way. So, um, I love here, you know, I loved mm -hmm. the initial meeting in the minds where, but it was, felt like it was, um, you know, when you, when you start having a higher level of learning, it felt a little rudimentary at first. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, um, like over the years, it just kicked up a notch and we started digging a lot deeper and having a lot more spirited conversations during that time. So that was kind of, uh, it, it kept my interest, which was, which was good. So I was talking about early meeting of the minds and when some of the topics were very, very, I felt like were simple. Like I expected um, uh, a little bit higher level because I was thirsty for it. I think that's what it was. Is I really wanted that, and then um, all of a sudden it kind of switched where we we um, started getting that um, science in, interjected into it and and um, challenging ourselves to ask uh, the tough questions. And I remember one of the first ones was. Um, uh, you know, they question our x-rays, they question our nervoscope, they start, you know, and so, and we started questioning the five to two rule. And, and so when we start questioning ourselves and we, and we say, yeah, are we going to do this because we've just been told to do it? Or are we going to do it because we know it, it's the right thing to do? And so that's what I'm liking about meeting the minds now is we're really starting to dig into, let's figure out, you know, what Dr. Gonstead knew that we didn't mm -hmm. and chose to do the way, the things that he did. And, um, and so the science that we have now is actually very good at proving that what he did was the right thing to do. I just don't think that the, all of that was there completely when he was practicing. So it's kind of evolved. Yeah. That was something Roger Coleman said to me is he said, we may know that what we do works, but if we can't prove it or explain how we're not going to convince anybody else. And so that should be our goal is not just saying, well, we know how it works and we're not going to take any opposition. He's like, because in the literature, we're getting killed because they're going to give all these things. And by giving no rebuttal, it makes it look like they're right. And so we need to be able to respond intelligently, say, well, here's what's really happening. And they felt the need to do that with the x-ray, which is why they've been doing so much x-ray stuff. But really, we kind of need it all across the board. And then the last meeting of the minds, we did the instrumentation. And actually, I found that fascinating. In fact, one of the biggest things for me was when Josh Lawler showed that with the Titron, when he did actual skin temperature, the differential might swing to the right and say that that side's hotter, even though both sides actually got colder, the right just got less cold. Than less the left. cold, that's right. And like, oh, <laughs> you get a deviation to the right when it becomes less cold, not necessarily hotter. And that's like just a, a total oh, paradox. Yeah. You just, I walked out of there just shaking my head. I'm like, okay, I just thought about 10 different studies I'd like to investigate. And uh, I was glad because I think a couple people were on fire after that. And it was a very well put together meeting of the minds. And um, it, it, I heard conversations like side conversations and, and um, 
questions were being asked. And, and I think a lot more people wanted to get involved with doing uh, the research and, and just as something simple as like what Josh did, it was just like, that is amazing stuff yeah. that, that we need to put forward. And so that we can, we can show that we are questioning what we're doing and, and trying to figure out what it is um, that we're using that instrumentation for. Um, but I, I have to say again, I liked what you said and that stuck with me. Um, in fact, I use it quite a bit in the classroom because um, basically our instrumentation, our nervoscope, it reads heat. That's it. We get heat. <laughs> so what is it really doing for us? Um, and so I remember you saying that you had a, a month or so, maybe longer, that you didn't have a scope because they were all, they all broke down all at once. And, <laughs> and you had to send them all off and, and they, weren't re they weren't sending replacements like they used to. And so you had to just figure out with your other criteria, what was going on. And, and you said that you noticed the biggest thing was that it told you when to stop. Mm -hmm. And um, that's really stuck with me. And that's kind of what I, I, I'm telling the students all the time, you know, whatever instrument you use, it's, you know, it's objective and you know when to leave the nervous system alone when the readings are no longer there. And so hopefully they will continue with some form of instrumentation no matter what they choose to practice so that they're not just guessing <laughs> yeah because that was an impromptu uh study on <laughs> on my part because i didn't intend it but then when i had no alternative i thought well i like investigation let's see what happens and i wasn't expecting it and it really did kind of really surprise me when that was the thing when people i'd be addressing somebody and i'd be like i don't know when it's better and they want to know and i'm like well the symptoms are improving but does that mean the subluxation is really better i don't know i don't have a scope and I have to give Chris Meyer credit because after I gave that lecture, he let me borrow one of his new scopes. And so I could go back and start scoping again. But when I came back in scoping, my first thought was, don't use it to find the subluxation, use it to know when to stop. And when I started right. really focusing on using it that way, it took over this whole department that was probably being left out and ignored because I could still find subluxations with x-rays and palpation and everything else, Right. but nothing else would replace knowing it's better. There's no reading. We need to let you go. And I, I do wonder if sometimes we adjust people a little too much if we don't pay attention to just how much the scope can tell us about when it is time to stop. And I remember going to seminars early on, and it seemed like Alex would harp on that point all the time of don't give one too many. You give one for the road and you make them worse. And he'd say that all the time. And it seemed like it just went over everybody's head, my head too. And I was like, I'm not even sure that I know what he's talking about, but I, I know that this must be important. I should remember it. Uh, and now I'm like, yeah, I think it's in the scope that you realize don't give them that one for the road because you'll set them back. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's so much of this that every time we're, we're exposed to, um, someone who's got that questioning mind or someone who's got way more experience than we do, or just getting together at these, these meeting the minds, these, um, extravaganzas, there's always something that you learn in conversation. Um, Parker Adams blew my mind a couple months ago with something he said, because I had always been told the uh, lumbar bodies will rotate to the EX side of the ilium to, to provide okay. support. And he goes, well, not always. And I said, what? <laughs> I said, that's what I learned. And he goes, I'll start looking at your x-rays. And I said, I haven't. And I said, he goes, you better take a better look. <laughs> I said, okay. So I did. And I'll be darned if like the next five or six, uh, you know, out of a certain number, they had rotate, the body rotation was on the IN side. And it's like, okay, what's going on here? Now I got to evaluate those biomechanics all different. And so, yeah, so I love it. I love the, the fact that we can uh, learn from people who know way more than we do and hopefully help others learn because we know a little bit more than they do. <laughs> so. Yeah. And actually that's an interesting one that with the, the L5 and the Ilium, because I'm always thinking to myself, is it the ilium rotation driving the lumbar rotation or the lumbar rotation driving the ilium rotation? Because it goes both ways. And so then can you really draw an inference off of rotation as to which one is the culprit? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. It might give you some insight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, then you get all the soft tissue structures that are, that can be 
you know, that play mm-hmm. into it there. And, and what's the pain pattern, you know, how did they, if they hurt themselves, how did that happen? You know, so I guess that's the fun in, in breaking out the puzzle and trying to figure out what, you know, what happened first, what happened next, and then, and then figuring out why it's ended up that way. And then hopefully do the right thing and predict that it'll be better when you're done. <laughs> yeah. And then also thinking kind of strategically, like if I've got an EX ilium, if the L5 is rotated away, would I really want to push that EX because I might drive more rotation into the L5? So maybe right. I'm better off pulling the EX so that I don't do that to the L5. But then on the other hand, if the L5 is rotated towards the EX, maybe I do want to push it and try to drive that L5 back to neutral. So like you can, you start thinking a little more chess. Like yeah. I want to I want to fix the subluxation, but I want to help everything else at the same time and not just focus just on this subluxation and ignore the rest of the spine. Just it'll work itself out kind of idea right and i mean those are i think are the you know because you we we get the cases that are i don't want to say routine you know but there are some things that where it's not as complicated as other things you know where where the spine decided it was going to be like the the book and and you get you get good results with a specific adjustment (laughs) but then you get those ones where it's like I have done everything I know, everything I've learned, what am I missing? And then you show the, the, the case to someone and they're like, well, did you check this? And you're like, Oh man, I can't believe I missed that. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes it just feels like the dumbest thing that was so basic that you just were like, Oh yeah, I missed it. (laughs) No, didn't check that. (laughs) Because we're human. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Well, and, there was, as I was thinking about this conversation, I was thinking, um, I had this thought and I, and it was, there was this thing that was in the back of my head. I kept thinking, how can I like really make a substance out of it? And what I started thinking about was the fact that there's a kind of a cultural shift. There's many cultural shifts, but there's one taking place now where, um, I mean, I don't know what I would blame it on, but maybe you blame it on cryptocurrency or something else. But there's the idea that you can be wealthy and do no work, or you can work really hard and be broke. And so um, success or income is now in our society is almost completely disconnected from developing a high level of skill. I see it in sports too. There are athletes now with very low levels of skill getting paid five times more than Michael Jordan ever made playing basketball, that kind of thing. And so you see that skill is not necessarily a a requisite for making money. And so I saw this even at school. There were people who came through at life who they already had a plan for how they were going to build a business and they were going to make lots of money. But skill wasn't really part of that whole equation because no. and I realized I don't blame them. It doesn't have to be. We live in that society. It doesn't have to be. If you want to do this to be rich, that's an option. Uh, and so sometimes it feels like it's kind of hard to motivate people as to why you might want to be really good at something. Like what really is the benefit? In it? And I realized that if somebody asked me, well, I could work really hard and become really good at this. What's the benefit in it for me? Sometimes I kind of go, I don't know. You feel good about yourself? You help people? I, I, beyond that, I don't know. There may not be one. Um, and I realized that a lot of the old time docs, they just got a unit, started a practice. They had no intention of building anything. They weren't building an empire. They weren't building a, anything. They just wanted to see patients and help people. And that's all they wanted to do. And that's kind of the the culture we went to school with was those older docs doing right. just that. That's right. That's a lot right. of them didn't take associates. They didn't do anything. They're like, I do my work. You need to go get an office and you need to go do your work. And that's just kind of how they thought. And now it's a whole different thing where people are like, well, how quickly can I add multiple offices and build a business and do all this stuff? And somewhere in the mix, skill sometimes gets left a little bit behind. So um, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? I It's funny you asked that because um, when I – one of the, the lessons that we talk about at, uh, during the Gonstead course at Life is um, the thoracic spine scoliosis. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know in teaching students that, that they love to adjust that thoracic spine. <laughs> yeah. It is such an ego builder. It just pops and cracks and, and makes all kinds of noise. And, and sometimes um, they'll just lay their hands on there. Oh, it already went. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> it didn't. And so one of the things that um, I really try to stress to them, and I, t- I tell them right at the beginning, I said, there's going to be three or four times I'm going to stand up here on the stage, and this is going to be my opinion. It's going to be my opinion only. It's going to be something I'm passionate about. 
it's going to be something I'm going to ask you to think about. And one of those things is, um, do you really, or should you really be adjusting that thoracic spine all the time? And okay. If so, you've got the criteria, you know, that you've followed a process and everything's there and yeah, sure. It needs adjusted. But if you're just doing it randomly, um, and you're, you're not making sure that that's what needs to be done for any bone, but, um, primarily for the sympathetic nervous system. Um, can you feel good that in 10 years time, you can take responsibility for what you've done? Mm -hmm. Can you sleep at night knowing 10 years from now that you have constantly pushed on somebody's thoracic spine, sped their heart up every time you did it, and then be feel good about it later on when they've got a degenerative process there? And, and know that that might've been your fault. That's mm -hmm. what the level of, that's what I, the way I think. That's why I take the care in doing what I do. You know, and I know when I first started practicing, I sucked. <laughs> I mean, I, I still followed the protocol, but I was not a good adjuster. But as I, you know, obviously 20 years in, I'm a much better adjuster. And I know in my heart that the care that I take and, and the things that I do in my practice, and I've got, a lot of things to prove it, including x-rays and continuing patients that I'm doing the right thing for these people 10 years later. So that's kind of where I stand on that. Yeah. I had a similar thought. I was looking at some biomechanics stuff. I was reading through white and Punjabi as I often do. And I was looking at the thoracic spine and I was thinking, I don't see how you can do an anteriority and not traumatize the supraspinous ligament. Um, and some of those other ligaments, because you're going to gap, you're going to separate the spinous processes in the process. And then I thought, but not just anteriorities, flip them over. What if you adjust too much I to S? If you're adjusting too much I to S over something, you're putting the same strain on those ligaments. And I began to wonder, to what extent are some adjustments traumatizing those posterior ligaments? And if you're doing it three times a week for six months, how much more are you actually making this worse over time with your frequency of your care? And if you saw them less, they'd be better off. That's and I've right. had patients who after getting years and years and years of anteriorities, they end up with that upper thoracic dishing where it's almost lordotic mm -hmm. with a very posterior segment right at the bottom of that. And all you have to do, it's hard to do it initially, but all you have to do is fix that posterior segment and that lordosis will come right back to a normal kyphosis. And it's like, so for years and years and years, you had somebody distorting your spine I can't see how that made you better, but it happens. And so I agree yeah. that thoracic is like a very sensitive area. It's your main sympathetic effect. And what are, what are you doing both in structure and stimulation? And then as you change posture there, that's mm -hmm. producing persistent stimulation. Is that really something you want to sign your name to? Right, right. I just know that, and, and this is anecdotal, um, but when, because we take full spine films early on in practice, I started just kind of noticing if someone had been under chiropractic care for a while and, and you ask patients, well, do you remember what they did to you? Um, how they adjusted you? And some of them do, some of them don't. Um, and so I would notice on the x-rays and that, uh, lumbo, that thoracic thoracolumbar junction started to become degenerated. Mm. And I'm like, this shouldn't be happening. There's hardly any weight bearing right here. Mm -hmm. Why is this degenerated? And, and then I started, you know, started connecting like, oh, okay. When they describe what happened to them when they got the adjustment, there was a lot of rotation in the moves that they, you know, in the, in the way that they got adjusted or it was over and over and over again. And so it was, I went through a period of sadness for our <laughs> profession. <laughs> so and, yeah. and now I'm just like, okay, just set up shop about a mile away from me so I can fix all your mistakes. Okay. <laughs> so I'm a little bit cocky when it comes to that, but <laughs> well, I think I've earned it. <laughs> well, and I, I do become more and more disturbed by rotation that mm -hmm. our profession does not do a god, good job self-policing. And yet we all study the disc. We study the spine. We know what a disc can't handle is rotation because of the annular fibers and they're 90 degree perpendicular. It's like you're tearing every other layer. We should be doing everything imaginable to, to limit rotation, to stabilize against it. And then you go on YouTube and you want to throw up with what you see. Right, right. And it's like, yeah, if I turn your head 180 degrees, something will eventually pop. It doesn't mean it's good. 
<laughs> it might be the facet's dislocating for all I know. Oh, like yeah. Yeah. it's gotta be something more than just making noise. And it's sad to me when I see patients who I would say because of YouTube now think that popping and making noise is all there is to it. They'll come in and say, well, my whole, my whole back hurts. You just need to pop everything. And you're like, oh, you're so far away from understanding how this actually works. Like right. miles away. Right. Yeah. I, I started again, once again, you said something that, you know, I think it was something on one of your podcasts I was listening. Oh, I know what it was. It was that darn Y strap thing <laughs> I was listening to. And I'm like, Oh, I got <laughs> I meant to label it and call the episode the W H Y strap. And I was in such a hurry that I screwed up and actually put the letter Y. And I was like, yo, dummy, it's supposed to be the WHY strap. <laughs> That's right. And I was listening to that and and um and started looking at the stuff that you quoted in the, you know, in the um, you know, the the science behind what was happening and the and the damage. Oh, we got some bugs out here. Um so then I started actually including that and in talking with the students and you know what made the biggest difference? And they remember this every time I did it, I went like this. What does that mean? What does that mean? And they're like sheer. And I said, what happens when you do that to a disc? It tears it. <laughs> said, okay. I all, all I have to do is that. And they know exactly what I'm talking about now. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was it's just those little things. If you can get that little tiny thing to come across to them, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll stay with them for a little while. I think one of the things our profession has slowly lost is the reverence for the spine and the discs. Mm -hmm. And so, and you, and, and I think you see that by the YouTube party of everything under the sun. And one of the things I get from it is that there is no reverence for this. Um, and so the patients, if they're watching YouTube, they're going to lose that reverence for the whole thing. And then what happens is also the patients lose the reverence for the chiropractor. We're not okay. really doctors. We're just guys who pop stuff. And so you start to lose that reverence for the fact that this is somebody's spine. It's the only one they get. It's their disc. And a bad disc is a horrible thing. A messed up spinal cord is 10 times worse right. than we should be doing everything with reverence. And I think that when you, I always come back to um, the sushi chefs, when you see sushi chefs in Japan and the reverence they have for dead fish, and we can't have that same level of reverence for a living spine. It's right. kind of sad that that's, that we don't have that kind of reverence for what we do. Yeah. I think that was pretty clear too. Like when students, they always went, Oh, can you adjust me? Can you adjust me? You know? And I'm like, okay, when's the last time you were adjusted? well, yesterday by so-and-so or over the weekend by this and over that, you know, and, and just letting anybody and everybody do whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, you know, even long before we weren't allowed to, um, to do it, the, the school finally said, no, um, you know, this kind of goes in, flies in the face of everything we're teaching our students that they should do a physical, that they should examine the patient. So if you adjust those students with none of that, and I'm like, I already knew that. You know, I don't, I wouldn't, you guys are public. You guys are all public. You just happen to be at Life University. If you were walking into my practice, you would get the same level of care that everyone in my practice gets. So why would I give you less? Because you're going to Life University. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, so you, you have to start taking care of your own spine. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. You're absolutely right. And um, what's really cool in the last, I would say two quarters, um, I've been ordering a lot more x-rays of our students. They want to see their spines and they are just like some of them are speechless. They one didn't know they had so much going on with their spines, like anomalies and the, the misaligned, you know, the way it's misaligned, but the loss of cervical curves is um, just astounding. And um, so I started talking to a couple students and, and I said, hey, do you have films before you came to school? And um, a couple of them do. And I said, I'd like to get those films and the ones we just took and make a comparison and see what's going on. And um, he said, just to see. I said, I don't know if it's going to be good, bad, and different. I said, but I just kind of want to see what happens after you go through this program, you know, and, and not knowing everything you need to know about taking care of your own spine. So... 
Right. I mean, speaking of studies, that would be an interesting study to look at a bunch of spines before they start school and a bunch after and yeah. see, are they better or are they actually worse? Yeah. You're just getting hammered on all the time. Yeah. That'd be yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sad to me when we don't reverence it and we, we think that we can microwave mastery. Um, I, I, even as a student, I was disturbed by people who graduated thinking, well, I've been at school three years. I got this all figured out. And you're like, really? <laughs> I, to me, if you can master it that fast, it's probably not worth learning. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Yes. That part's kind of sad, but um, I think I stood up on the stage about six or seven times more than I planned on to though, <laughs> with my little soapbox of information. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, with that, um, with what you were saying, um, I think what, what I would tell them a lot of times when I would do that scoliosis one is I would say, if I asked you all right now, you will all tell me that the thoracics are the easiest ones to adjust and you've got them pretty much figured out and they all nod their heads. And I would tell them in 10 years, you're going to tell me it's the hardest one if you try to do it correctly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and they, and they kind of get big eyes. I'm like, no, I'm serious. Like you're getting noise out of them easily. They do that easy. But when you've got a patient who's got a very particular T6 problem that's producing very particular symptoms and you have to fix it, you're going to suddenly find that that's not so easy. Yep. Yeah. But on the other hand, I've, uh, you know, been able to, um, in full spine three, when they're uh, first learning to adjust, I've been in a few of those labs and, and I'm able to now go in and tell them why, you know, okay, we have this person's x-rays. They don't have a curve. We can't adjust that cervical spine and, and then walk them through the process of why not. And so then they get it and I was like, okay, let's look at this area. Did you find anything here? Let's go reevaluate again. And um, the successes that they're having um, with my guidance and doing what is right for that student patient at the time is they are so proud of themselves that they know that now. And so, so there are a lot of successes that I'm seeing them have, which is, is really, really nice. It's a good feeling. Yeah, when when I started in practice, which would have been right around 2000, then there were chiropractors around who had probably been in practice since maybe the 60s or 70s. Um, and I found that with those people, a lot of them, it didn't matter what school they went to, they were pretty good. Like schools generally graduated people with a high level of skill and knowledge. And then somewhere along the line, it probably had to do with the 1980s and it probably had to do with the insurance melee that yeah. happened and it just kind of set everything back a little bit you ended up with this phase where there were schools where it's like some people know what they're doing and a lot of people just don't seem to really even care and that kind of caused the melee and it seems like we're just now getting back to that phase where where schools and students are starting to realize that it's not enough to go out and just start popping spines and saying well i get insurance reimbursement so what do i care well now you don't so now you mm -hmm. better care so yeah. that i think that has kind of helped bring us back to where we used to be um, and that, and I saw that too, that there were more and more students. I was always pleased to see that there were more and more students who really wanted to know, like, how do you fix this problem? What do you do with this? And, and when we gave them rules, especially in that Gonset class, when I gave them rules, but then explained to them why it was a rule, I said, this rule is not meant to confine you. This rule is meant to keep you out of trouble. It's to be a guideline so you don't do something wildly stupid and get in a bad place. And so the other lecture besides this one, the one that I really loved, was the um, torticollis, where we do spasmodic and non-spasmodic torticollis. Right. And show them that and be like, this is so easy to screw up, but when you know this, you'll be able to help people. And this, like, it, it makes a world of difference. Yes. they. Um, I think after, I just did that lecture, as a matter of fact, and um, I had probably half a dozen, eight, nine, ten students come up. Can you show me that again? How does it work? And I was like, okay, do it with me. And so then they would do it again. There's like, I want to make sure I have this, you know? And so, yeah, that was, it's always, I like to see the after class questions because sometimes they won't raise their hands during class because they don't want to look like they don't know what's going on, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's always refreshing. Yeah. They'll come up with their questions afterwards, but if it's a good question, then I just go to the next lecture and begin the, begin the lecture with their question. That's a good <laughs> idea. Like, I'm just going to start with this really good question that was asked because I know you all don't know it. <laughs> that's a good idea. I have a, a transfer student that's in the class now and she transferred from a school not too far from here. And um, she's like, I feel like I learned a lot about adjusting and the techniques and stuff like that. She goes, but now I know why. <laughs> she mm -hmm. goes, 
thank you for putting that all together for me. It's all making sense now. And so I think that's one of the biggest things that we can do for, for students and young doctors is, is um, tell them why they're doing this. And like you said, the rules are there to, so you know why. Because um, if you don't know why, you're just guessing. Yeah. And I don't like guessing. I don't want somebody guessing with my health. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I like, th- I like in my head to think I need to do it this way or I have to do it this way. But here is the reason why I have to do it this way in this scenario. Right. Um, and if I don't have that, I start looking for it because I don't feel comfortable being like, well, something might be happening that I don't really understand. I'm just going to go for it and hope for the best. That okay. doesn't seem like a good approach. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, there's some things I think we can do that, but not somebody else's spine. <laughs> it's back to that reverence again that this is a person's spine. And and I also have kind of come to the... Uh, the reality that no matter how bad it is, it really can always be worse. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be the one who makes it worse. And so when it's already really bad, you have a very small window. Um, one of those things being like um, somebody who's really acute. Mm-hmm. When somebody's really acute, the best skill you can have is patience. Because yeah. when you have an acute patient and you go in there just gangbusters, ready to move everything like a maniac, you set yeah. them so far back, you can really like, put them way back there. And if you just have patience and figure out where's my subluxation, what's my vector, even if I just hold pressure on it, we're going in the right direction and we'll just be patient. They come off so much better than just being like, I'm going to set this to the moon and you're going to be, it doesn't really work that way. And it no, no. Cause you know, cause I could tell, you know, I tell, I even use that. I'm like, I could try to fix it all in one visit, but you wouldn't like me very much and you'd never come back. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. You know, we know the damage we can do. We we know, well, hopefully everybody knows the damage you can do if you're not careful. Um, apparently some people don't. Um, but, you know, when you do have that reverence and you know that there's just, if you're out of control and you're, and you're not taking the care that you can really, really do some damage and then you're responsible for that. But, um, you know, as long as the medical com- community doesn't think we know anything, they're not going to hold us responsible. And, but one day they will mm-hmm. because they're going to figure out we do know what we're doing and, and, and we're going to have to prove that we know what we're doing um, and that we'll be held responsible for damage as well. So um, I want to have that mindset now, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm responsible for what I do. Yeah. And as the schools continue to improve, which I think is always their goal, and the level yes. of students coming out of there are constantly improving, that will change the level that the entire profession is held to. And it should. Uh, we, yes. We do that. I hope so. I, I know that I'm doing my part to give them my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, um, I, I guess I, I'm, I know a lot of people from a lot of different schools, and I'm starting to realize just how great the discrepancy is becoming between schools. Mm-hmm. That yeah. They're not that – a lot of them are not similar at all, and it's, it's kind of wild. So I know that part of my reason for even starting this podcast was to – put information out there to help some of the people who are in school. I, I went to a school where at one point I did consider transferring, but I was helping enough people learning Gonstead that I thought if I leave now, who's going to help them? Who's going to bring them along? And I don't want to do that. And I thought, well, I've made it this far. I'll just stick it out. Um, and then there's always been a part of me that um, <laughs> the first time I stepped foot on campus at life, I was like, why did I not come here again? <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I, there is a, uh, there's that level. And so I, I kind of have this heart for the people who are at the other schools mm-hmm. who want the information. And I know that no matter what school you're at, it's going to have some good parts. You right. just have to figure out where the gaps are and fill them in. And so um, I guess if somebody was in that situation, having teaching at life, and actually you've done more, much more than teaching, you put whole programs together. So <laughs> what would you what would your advice be for somebody who's in that situation where they're out of school and it probably has some holes, but they really want to learn Gonstead and they want to do the work well? What, what would you advise them to do? Um, first of all, I think humble yourself. Humble yourself. And, and, and you probably already started doing that if you know you're missing something and you figure some, you've got some gaps. And, and um, you know, there's nothing wrong with um, I've, going back to the beginning and, and finding those basics. And, and you know the extravaganza is a, a student-focused Mm-hmm. workshop, but there's a lot of new doctors there too. And so, 
you know, go back there with a um, an open mind and, and attend the Mount Horeb seminar when or any of the ones that GMI offers throughout the year, um, where they have a focus on on learning the skill um, and re refocusing you. Um, and because you said something that you know they they should fill in the gaps and sometimes they don't even know what those gaps are unless they've heard something somewhere and they're like what does what's that mean why'd you say that mm-hmm. just like when i when i first got in, um under care from a gonsta doctor i'm like what is that why is that different where what are we doing here and so mm-hmm. i didn't know there was a difference i didn't know what i was missing and um so a lot of those students from those schools don't know what they don't know until they maybe have a connection with somebody that says something and then it sparks that interest but i say Take the time to go back to your beginnings and 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 learn from with a student's mindset. Um, I teach at the um, fall continuing education every year at Life, and that's kind of intimidating because now we're teaching other doctors, you know. But you know, it's like it's amazing to me how many people show up for my Gonstead labs because oh, really? it's strictly lab. There's no lecture part; it's all hands on. Okay. And and the bad habits that they've picked up and the struggles they're having. And some of them were life graduates and they, they still are struggling because either they're not near another doctor, they don't have that support uh, for whatever reason. And it's just one little thing that I may say or do that can help them be more successful. And that's ultimately what I want. I don't want people to feel like they're defeated and they can't do what they want to do because if, you know, um, if they're trying to do good, solid, neutral, adjusting work, you know, yay. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's just start over and I, I don't know, did you save any of your books and any of your notes from school? Uh, yes, it's kind of embarrassing. We have a garage filled with, well, because my wife's also a doctor, we've oh, got yeah, yeah. two multiple, like at least three bookshelves in our garage of books that we don't go through often, but they're all of our school books with notes. And I always yeah. tell myself, one day I will pull those out. And there's a few that are pretty good in there that I haven't gone through, but I do have some. And every once in a while I go through them and I'm like, that's a gem. I should have, I right. should have gone through these more often. Yeah, that's right. And so hopefully they've done that too in some way and start digging through some of the stuff they learned and, and just, um, cause I think at a certain point we forget more stuff than, you know, you don't use it. You don't use all those orthopedic tests every day. You don't, you know, remember all those nerve tracks and, and, uh, you know, and, and you just don't use it. So you don't remember it, but, um, you know, it's good to go back and look at some of the stuff that you did. Yeah, I have seminar notes. And speaking of seminar notes, mm-hmm. the ones I keep the most are the meat of the minds ones. That's right. Yeah. I, and I do go back over those. And I tell myself, don't forget to go back over these because give it about two months and go over it and you'll right. have a whole. Sometimes I even do it. And that's where I get material for uh, for podcasts as I go through. There I go, go. Well, there's an idea. Then I start chasing it down. And next thing I know, I'm like, I've just kind of built my own little podcast off of this, off of this trail that I've been chasing right. off of one statement somebody made in a meeting of the minds. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I know that like, you, like there's so much that I want to do before I retire um, with research surrounding our, our, um, our technique and our system that um, I'm hoping somebody a little younger than me will, will help out because I don't think I'm going to get it all done before I retire. But um, you know, there's so much we can do and also guiding the students in that way too. It's like, look guys, are you just doing what this technique has told you to do because somebody else told you to do it that way? Or are you questioning it? And are you figuring out why you're doing it? And what is the method behind why you're doing it? And, and test it to see if it actually stands up to the testing that you put it through. You know, don't be complacent with just, you know, now these guys were brilliant when they developed these techniques, but we know more. Let's test it. Let's figure out if what we're doing is what we say we're doing. And, um, so hopefully they'll, they'll get the bug and, and want to, want to look into stuff like that eventually. I think right now all they're worried about is getting out of there and getting into practice. That, that is the school syndrome. Yeah. 
<laughs> just get me out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. This has been a good conversation. Hopefully people have learned uh, some stuff about the Diplomate test, why we do it, and some of the benefits of it. Maybe you'll inspire more people to do it. But I'm glad there's so many uh, who are taking it this next time because I think that kind of proves the point that they are seeing the value in it. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's exciting. It's, um, it's tiring, but it's exciting because when you see all the success behind it, um, it, it makes it all worth it. So, well, thank you for, um, asking me about my journey. I appreciate you. Let me share that. Yeah. There's, there are a few people have unique stories, but I remember the first time you told me yours, I was like, that's a little different. And I, I like it because of the fact that you were in a chiropractic office. It wasn't like, it's like sometimes people think that we become Gonstead doctors because, well, I went to my first chiropractor, they were Gonstead, so I've never known anything else and that's all I'll ever do. And that's not as convincing as I was in an office where I saw everything and I chased yeah. after the thing that the only thing that actually helped me. And that was that's kind of my story is that I, I was ready to quit chiropractic because nothing was helping me and a lot of things were making it worse. And then I found Gonstead and that made all the difference in the world. And that's I, I, to me, that's a persuasive story. <laughs> and I think that's why we get so many referrals <laughs> because it's probably true. Yep. Yeah. Cause once you start helping one person, everybody they know who's not getting help, they want to, they want to share it. So that's, that's why right. I've always said that the results are what generate referrals, not the things you say. That's right. So all well, it's right. good to see you again. Yes. <laughs> you too. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Oh, it's stalling out a little bit, uh, but thank you. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. I've been wanting to have you on here for a while, but I, I knew you were busy when I first came back and I thought, well, you've got enough going on over there, but I'm glad you got a little reprieve that we could do it. Yes. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Dever for joining me. If you've never considered taking the Diplomate test before, I would highly encourage you to do so. Even if you fail the test, there is so much to be gained from finding out what your weaknesses are so you can work to improve them. And you can always come back and take the test again. The Diplomate test was first created to identify those who have the knowledge and experience to teach the technique to others. To this day, it still serves that same purpose. So if you're looking for someone to learn from, look for a diplomate or a fellow, so you know you're learning the right stuff. We now have more people looking to test who practice outside the United States. If you practice outside the United States, please consider taking the diplomate test, as we would love to have more diplomates around the world. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.